Welcome to Double Take, where we explore the art and science of making good decisions. I'm Matt. And I'm Anshul. And today we have a special episode for you. We're exploring the age-old question that I'm hearing more and more of these days, and that is, should I start a business? Yeah, Matt, I think I've had well, probably like three people asking this in the last week. I don't know if it's because of the economic climate or maybe just, you know, people trying to diversify their income these days, but yeah, definitely something I'm hearing a lot of. Yeah. In, in your case, I think it's definitely a bit of both of those things. I remember quite clearly when we almost started a business together. Oh man. Yeah. It feels like forever ago. It's a really good story, right? Because we ended up doing, we're taking the two different parts in that decision. You ended up taking a job. I kept starting businesses and I think we both thought about it pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we both thought about it pretty hard and uh, came to different decisions in the end. I mean, let's so let's get into it. Let's unpack it because some of that thinking really applies very well to this conversation. For sure. Let's do it. Cool. Before we start, I think it's probably worth breaking down the question a bit because when I think of business, it might not be what other people think of when they say the word business. So in your view, what do we even mean by the word business? Mm. It's a really good question. I mean, there's so many different types of businesses, right? I'm a little embarrassed. When I started on this path, I used to think the only ones worth starting were, you know, the big tech venture capital backed businesses, like in anything that would become the next Google or the next Facebook and the hype and, you know, brand and media around that industry is so compelling. I actually used to look down on, you know, everything else, you know, everything from cleaning companies to agencies. Even though, you know, in, in hindsight, they're all extremely interesting. I fell into the exact same trap and I think you're being a little bit hard on yourself because I think it's a super common misconception. It's a really, really easy mistake to make for several reasons. I think one of the most obvious reasons is that, you know, VC-backed businesses, sexy direct-to-consumer businesses, they just get so much media attention and coverage. They're literally all people see on LinkedIn and online and in the news. And so it's, it's really natural to think that that's all there is. And in fact, it is an example of a pretty important cognitive bias that we've talked about a lot and that would definitely factor into this conversation, which is sampling bias. I'm sure it'll be important for this discussion. Let's not go down the psychology rabbit hole just yet, because yes, in reality, you're right. There are so many different types of businesses and so many ways one can start a business. For example... Being a former consultant myself, one that I've seen really often is selling time and skills as a freelance consultant and eventually building credibility, building a bit of a client portfolio and you know hiring people in to work under you or contract. People don't really think of that as like a business, but it can be an amazingly successful and sustainable business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's a really common one. It's probably one of the easiest types of businesses to start where you almost do whatever you were doing in your job or you find some service to offer, people are willing to pay for it. And you know, as you build enough of a client base, you can start to farm out some of that work and keep a clip yourself. I know a guy who, I think he walks dogs for $30 an hour. He works for three to four hours every day. And you can see him in the park walking, you know, at this point, 20 to 30 dogs at a time. So in a given day, he can make, you know, over a thousand, between one and $2,000 just dog walking, he's living a great life, super, super chill, gets to hang out with the, all these dogs. And, you know, that's one example. You can do it in design, web development, you should go clean houses, literally anything. Yeah, it's just an understanding of how to scale your time in that case. People assume that if you're selling your time, it can't be a big profitable business, but there are hacks to scale your time to kind of multiply yourself. And I think in that case, very boring things can become 
really lucrative and interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One of the one of the first businesses I tried was drop shipping, levitating bonsai plants. So I found this Kickstarter where they basically took an electromagnet and stuck a little pot with a magnet on top of it, and it would levitate and spin very slowly. And it looked very, very cool. And of course, you know, somebody in China had found the Kickstarter, copied the design, we're ripping them off. So, you know, one third or a quarter of the price. And all I had to do was set up a Shopify store, run some Facebook ads, go put in the order every time I got an order on the Alibaba site and just ship it direct to the customer. And I would keep, you know, maybe a 50% margin. And it worked super, super well, but it's it's often, you know, maybe it's more of a common idea now and dropshipping might not work as well. But when I came across it, it definitely wasn't what I typically thought of when I thought of business. You know, I might have thought of, you know, buying inventory and selling things or, you know, opening up a shop or, you know, raising money and building some software. I think there's definitely something to the point that, you know, there's a very diverse range of businesses. And depending on your goals, it makes a lot of sense to think about which one and what types you want to build. Yeah, for sure. I mean, people people do all sorts of odd things that end up being ludicrously successful and we often don't hear about them. I think the, the Bonzo one's a great example because, you know, people talk about e-commerce arbitrage all the time. And I think many people assume that it doesn't happen anymore, that there is basically an efficient market, no arbitrage, you just have to grind. We both know that's not true from even examples in our personal network, be it selling levitating bonsais or not. So I, I'm keen to dig into some of them. One one that I've seen a lot of in this sort of creator, creator economy world is creating digital content and both monetizing the content itself, but also using it for a whole manner of things. Sort of a bit of a cheeky example could be starting a podcast that gives unsolicited advice and you know selling mattresses <laughs> or, <laughs> or new tropics or protein shakes or whatever you want off the back of it. We, we, we'd never do that. Oh, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's honestly dozens of options beyond those. And I think it means the decision is probably not just should I start a business, it's also what kind and how. And the important takeaway is that it really, really depends on your goals. Like if your main goal is to make money, which I think it is for a lot of people, then maybe you actually just go hunt for these arbitrages. Have you heard of this guy called Val? I'm, I'm going to butcher his last name, Val Katiev. Val Katiev. I don't think so, but it's a it's a nice, strong Soviet sounding name, which <laughs> I love. So I think this is going to be an interesting story. Yeah, there's always a good story from the Soviets. This one's one of my favorites. So this guy called Val grows up in the Soviet Union, moves to the US when he's 11. When he's 19, he notices that the New York Times has an affiliate program. So that means when you send a customer to sign up to the New York Times as a paid member, they'll pay you $100 each time you send them a new subscriber. And what he discovers is that he can start paying for Google Ads, which is a very new thing at the time. And he can spend $40 on Google Ads, send them one customer and get paid $100. So he's making a $60 profit every time he does this. What? Well, I mean, firstly, $100 for an affiliate referral. How much does New York char Times charge for a for a, for a paper subscription? It doesn't seem like you ever make any money off of that. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, um, but any, I'm surprised <laughs> so that they never cottoned on to the fact that there's this guy kind of just churning one person, churning out referrals for them? Well, eventually they did. But I think at the time, online ads, you know, Google search ads was a fairly new concept. They probably didn't have much of an internal team doing it themselves. There probably weren't many other people in the world running affiliate marketing the same way he was. And this is what makes it an arbitrage, I guess. You know, they typically exist for a fairly short period of time. They're an inefficiency. 
you know, between supply and demand in a market and somebody can find usually a cheaper source of, you know, supply on one side of the market somewhere else and, you know, make a profit off funneling that gap until other people catch on to it and close that gap. Yeah, but for, it's, I mean, at 60, at 60 bucks a pop, this Val guy is running basically an infinite money machine for, for at least some period of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just take money, you pour it in, you take every cent of savings you have, you put it in, you get paid back very, very quickly, and you just pour it in again, and it keeps compounding. And, you know, he's just making $60 profit per referral until, you know, maybe the New York Times started spending some money on ads, or other people realize the same strategy, they spend some, and eventually, you know, it goes from 60 to 50 all the way down to zero. Guess how much he made in total? Oh, okay. $60 per referral. I mean, this this reminds me of one of those case studies we would have done in my private equity days at 60 bucks per pop. I guess, I mean, he would have got, he would definitely got to several thousand referrals at minimum before the New York Times cottoned on and did something about it or any competition came in. And even on that basis, that would already be several hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, I don't know, but I'm going to guess about, let's say a million dollars in profit. $30 million in profit. What? No employees, just him, no office, no investors. He's 19 years old when he starts this. He was the second largest advertiser after eBay at the time. That is wild. And yeah, that's exactly what we said earlier. Many people would not even think of that as a business. It's not, it's not even in their option set when they think about should or should I not start a business. Yeah, exactly. And if your goal is to make money, right? If you're starting business because, you know, maybe you want financial freedom, you never want to have to work for somebody again, then you yeah. instead of going off and, you know, maybe starting an e-commerce store or starting a services business. This might actually be a way better way to reach your goals. And it barely looks like a business in the traditional sense. You know, when you hear stories like that, you start to question why you're playing the game on hard mode. This guy just went and found the glitch in the matrix and he just, you know, spun his infinite money machine. And in theory, he never would have had to work again. He actually went on and did a whole bunch of other, you know, very interesting businesses. I think it's, you know, kind of hardwired into some people like that. But I'm curious, you know, when you decided, or I guess when you were tossing up between, you know, starting a business or, you know, taking a job, what was the decision framework you used? You know, were, were you thinking this broad? Were you, you know, optimizing for things like, you know, maybe never, never having to work again? And, you know, did you also think about, you know, maybe there's a, a little hack I can go play somewhere? in the universe to, to spin my own little infinite money machine? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, potentially, if there was a $30 million pure profit play directly at my fingertips, the decision might have been a little bit different. But I mean, in general, I'm, I'm really keen to dig into this because it is a super complex decision, you know, lots of variables to weigh up. And I mean, both of us have, we, we've started and worked in businesses of pretty much every shape and size. We've worked closely with founders and investors. And so I think we've both seen, you know, the light side of business and the the dark side of doing this. And depending on the option and the way you go, it can be pretty light and it can be pretty dark. And so maybe we should zoom out a little bit and frame this problem up and tackle it a bit systematically. Maybe, you know, the first principles approach, because the answer won't be the same for everyone. Yeah, sounds good. And I think before getting into that, it's probably worth thinking through why people commonly start businesses, because I think there's a lot of good reasons, a lot of bad reasons. And I think more importantly, there's a lot of misconceptions. I think definitely, you know, from what I've seen and what I've learned, the the common misconceptions around, you know, different types of businesses, what it's even like running a business, the pros and cons, the trade-offs. There's definitely a lot of, you know, the grass is greener and 
just misunderstanding of, you know, what that journey is like and what the benefits are. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, off the top of my head and from from speaking to people who have gone through this decision process and even gone down the route of starting a business, there's several things that that jump out. The most common one, I think, is probably money. You know, people want financial freedom or, to be frank, some people just even want to be obscenely rich. They've seen founders IPOing and they just want in and they just want a slice of that pie. The the other really common one that comes to mind is sort of like personal freedom, you know, autonomy of how you work, when you work, what you do, and not being sort of subject to anyone else's decisions. Really common. And I know a pain point for many people in the corporate world. The other one that's common, but potentially not talked about very often is a bit of an ego thing. There's a, there's a little bit of like a status play or a fame play. And a lot of people like to think of themselves as, you know, an entrepreneur or founder. They don't usually say it openly and honestly, but we all know it's there. And, you know, there is definitely something attractive about the idea of, of setting something up and, and growing something. But yeah, people do tend to keep that one under wraps a bit. Yeah, I, I think that one ties into the, you know, making a lot of money one as well, right? If you had $100 million, you wouldn't be able to spend it. It's just, it's not possible. And so you have to ask yourself at that point, what am I, what am I doing it for? What am I going to do with more money? Oh, I, t- I totally disagree with that one. I have the theory that no matter how much money you have, there is a way to spend it. It's, a, it's an inherent property of money. Money, money is spendable. Possibly. Yeah, I, I guess you, you, you can definitely you know, rise up through the, through the levels of the golden handcuffs and, and find ways to, to spend on larger and larger luxuries if you wanted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of, one of the other things that I see a lot in people looking to start their, business, start their own businesses is just this type of person who hungers for challenge and for some sort of ambition. It's different from status where it's a bit of an external play. This is more internal. You know, some people are just wired to want to do difficult things. And some people do this through, you know, during endurance sports and competitions and things like that. And other people definitely tick that box through setting up businesses and entrepreneurship. It it can be really hard. And I think some people just can't get away from that challenge. Yeah. I think I forget what the quote is, but I've forgotten it. It was, it was something about chips on shoulders and chips in pockets. But the, the high level point being that, you know, behind every kind of successful, motivated, driven individual, there's usually a chip on their shoulder. And that's, that's driving a lot of that behavior. Cause a lot of it is probably counter to being, you know, happy on a, on a day to day basis and, and driving them to do, you know, bigger and harder things. Yeah, for sure. It's that it's that sort of inner, unloved, neglected child that wants to perform to to win love. But anyway, let, again, let's not get too much into the psychologizing. People do definitely chase chase this founder path for a sense of ambition quite commonly. And it's sort of a related point, but not exactly the same. A lot of people just want this sense of fulfillment that comes from ownership and, and doing something that's really aligned with the passion area. You know, people want to solve particular problems. And a lot of people who start businesses do start them in particular problem areas. They, they might have a passion for that problem. Or to be frank, they might just not feel fulfilled in any other environment like a corporate career. And so they want a sense of making a real impact on things they care about. And the business is, is the way that they pursue that desire. Yeah, uh, there's, there's so many to un- unpack in there. And it's a pretty tangled set of motivations, right? You know, between money and freedom, you've got 
you know, financial freedom, obviously, but then maybe some sense of freedom with how you spend your time or what you work on. And, you know, the right type of job could even give you that sort of freedom if you've got autonomy there. But some people might go off and start a business because that's mm. the only path which they feel will give them that level of freedom. Same thing with the fame and the status. It's, you know, very much tied into, you know, sense of ownership, sense of fulfillment a lot of time. Very, very complex. Have you have you heard about the FIRE movement? It reminds me a little bit of that. Oh, I have vaguely heard of it. What I recall is it's it's some Reddit community about financial independence. Yeah, yeah. So FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Yes, and yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's the same as the same as the the Dinks. Double income, no kids. I think uh, yeah. there's a big overlap there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the core premise is if I save up enough you know, liquid assets, you know, cash, put them into, you know, fairly liquid stocks or investments. I can do that in such a way where my total amount will keep growing every year, but I'll need to, I'll be able to take enough, like a, a living salary off the interest that, or the the appreciation that I get every year. So, you know, I'm, I'm making the numbers up here, but if I save up $3 million, I put them into the right kinds of ETFs, those compound at you know, five to eight percent per year. Maybe I'm taking one or two percent off that, and that's enough for me to live off. And you know, obviously, the bigger it gets, the the more I can live off, and the more comfortably I can live. And so, this is a community of people who, you know, they find different ways to get there. They might start a side hustle. They might work three jobs in parallel. They might do some contracting. It could be anything. But they try really hard to as quickly as possible get to their buyer financial goal, you know, maybe $3 million and then quit their jobs and never work again. Maybe they'll go, you know, live somewhere cheap, reduce their expenses and, you know, enjoy life in theory. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds pretty good to me. It's, it's basically an acknowledgement of what compound interest looks like. You know, if you, if you raise the, the funds early enough, the compounding does a lot of work for you. And if you don't raise it so early, you kind of have to work for a longer time. So on the face of it, it sounds like a, a movement I might be able to get around, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool idea. I think it, you know, it's probably the same dream as the whole, you know, Tim Ferriss four-hour work week that, that blew up back in the day. Appeals to a lot of the same kinds of people. What I find super interesting, and you, you get this everywhere on Reddit, but you get really, really detailed personal stories if you go on there. So people jump in, they'll, you know, type up their whole plan. They'll say, you know, super motivated by what I've seen on here. You know, here's my plan over the next three to four years, especially with remote working. You'll find, you know, some characters who'll do two or three full-time jobs fully remotely. They'll work themselves very hard and eventually they'll get there. You know, they'll, they'll post about it. They're halfway there, three quarters of the way there. You know, I finally made it. You know, I've got $3 million in my bank account. You know, here's a screenshot. I'm going to put it, you know, here's my investment mix. I've just quit all my jobs. They're super, super excited. And then what I find super fascinating is you go back six months later and they post about what life is like. And the first three months, six months, nine months, they're super happy. They're traveling the world. And inevitably, all of them at some point will come back and say, hey, I'm kind of over this, right? You know, it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. Nobody else is free. I have nobody to hang out with. I'm kind of bored. There's something missing. I do feel like I need to work. I haven't you know, use my brain for a long time. And I think what's really interesting is they they go through this whole journey. They think they really, really want this. You know, they burn themselves out for three years. They, you know, avoid social events. They skip Christmases. They, they do what they have to to hit their goal because they think, hey, after I hit this, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And 
they almost always come back to the realization of, hey, this isn't what I really wanted. And so they sacrifice a lot in pursuit of a goal which they never really wanted, which in some sense is the the trap of you know every decision which we make. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that happening. And it's almost unfortunate. There's a bit of a selection effect here where you know, the type of people who can put themselves through three years of slog working three jobs at the same time not seeing their friends, not going out. Those are not the type of people who are going to spend the next X years of their life doing nothing, sitting on a beach, drinking cocktails. <laughs> and actually, the, the type of people who, who would want to do that are basically not going to do fire. So it's a bit unfortunate. <laughs> but yeah, yeah those, those, those particular Venn diagrams just, just don't overlap. Yeah. You know, it's, it, what, I, what I find crazy in, in that story is that there are so many people who, you know, off the back of some misconceptions like, the allure of this fire way of living will honestly sacrifice years and years of their lives, friendships, relationships, and and some of the best years of their lives in pursuit of this thing that you know ends up not working. I did a little bit of thinking on you know decisions of, of this type, and in particular the decision you know should I start a business in the same way as you know fire gives you your financial fulfillment, starting a business might do so. I think it's important to sort of break it down and think in that level before making these pretty drastic, potentially life-changing decisions. Yeah, for sure. How did, how did you think through it? Well, I mean, in some ways, every decision, if you zoom out, when it comes to sort of allocating resources and time, they kind of follow, they, they need to follow somewhat of the same pattern. And uh, you know, before getting into it, I think one of the key issues with answering this question, should I start a business? And you know, potentially why so much advice on this online is just either terrible or you know, unhelpful, comes down to the fact that there are such stark individual differences in circumstances and in values and in desires, and so much uncertainty and risk involved in trying to optimize for any of them and making certain decisions. And so I think the best you can kind of do in this case is lay down the, the framework really clearly, and individuals kind of have to work through it themselves. There is not going to be one, one answer for, for everyone. But you know, zooming out, as with any good decision, first thing you need to know are what are your goals and values? You know, what actually are you solving for? Once you've got that, you need to understand how to prioritize them. You know, what really matters? Assuming you can't get everything, then you need to understand what are the bullets in your gun? What are the options that you have at your disposal in order to meet those goals? And then lastly, you need to assess those options. And this means what I do now, what I do later, what I don't do sequencing all those good things in order to meet those values. It's a very structured approach. The final output should be an answer, you know, what what should I do? What should I do to achieve those goals? Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that sounds about right. And I think the trap is, there's probably a few traps in there, but I think definitely starting with defining your goals, eliminating the ones which aren't high priority, because this is, you know, it's a very complex multivariate decision. I think it's very easy to get trapped in trying to optimize for every variable when in fact, usually for most people, only maybe one or two are really, really important. And then going wide on your option set, right? You know, maybe, maybe if you had hunted harder for, you know, 30 million pure profit arbitrage, you wouldn't be in your job today. And then I think the easiest part is actually then assessing your options that you're really, really clear on what you want, what the top, you know, handful of priorities are and what all the available options are. So yeah, I think that that makes sense. And 
I think in particular, understanding the trade-offs and getting the right information about, you know, each of the different option sets, options in the option set is quite tricky. I think there's a lot of misconceptions here because there's so much availability bias around, you know, how founders portray themselves, how, you know, certain types of businesses, like we were saying before, like venture capital are portrayed in the media, how there's, you know, so many other businesses you don't even hear about, which, you know, brilliant businesses solve you know, a lot of problems really, really well, but you know, you, you just never exposed to them. For sure. For sure. And not just availability biases. I mean, there are other cognitive biases, just about how people think about their values, how they optimize things, where if you don't take a bit of a structured systematic approach, you're almost bound to, to make the wrong decision in this space. And so totally right. Super important. I agree with, with everything you said. I mean, let's, let's take, let's take the most important one or the most common one, which is money and financial freedom as an example. I mean, it's it's obvious that something everyone cares about when it comes to career decisions is money. I think, you know, overall, obviously starting a business can, if everything goes well, be great for this. You know, it can offer significant financial rewards. However, depending on the type of business, it also comes with risks. It usually requires a pretty significant amount of time and sometimes personal investment upfront. And Honestly, it all it all depends a lot on the type of business you start, how you approach it. And so I think this one's super important to carefully, carefully evaluate. People need to understand their own priorities and values. They need to understand specific market and industry conditions that they might be considering pursuing. And, you know, really think through all these things before making the decision of whether to start a business and what type of business to start. I think the first the first huge watch out here, and the fire example illustrates this really well, is actually an understanding of, of how much money you really need, what, what sort of quantum of money is going to provide the sort of feeling of fulfillment and happiness or, and whatever it is that people are chasing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think for most people, it's not that much. I know there's a, it's a slightly controversial study now that says people's happiness tends to hit diminishing returns around 75,000 US dollars. There's some arguments that maybe it's a bit higher than that. Maybe you know, call it 100, 110. But if you, you know, following the fire example, if you make anywhere from three to $10 million, then you should be able to invest it in a way where you're fairly set up for life. You get the goal of financial freedom. You don't have to work again. And in terms of the types of businesses you could go start, it actually narrows the scope significantly because obviously the bigger the type a bigger type of business you're trying to build, the more risky it's going to be. And if you just want to, you know, build something that makes you three to $10 million over 10 years, then there are a lot, a lot of fairly low risk ways to do it, which might actually avoid, you know, many of the cons that come with starting a business too. You know, the, the level of time investment, the level of risk in, you know, potentially losing, you know, the time you invest or the opportunity cost versus being in a job during that time, financial risk. I think it's something that a lot of people don't think about it up front. Yeah, for sure. I think before before jumping in, maybe it's worth stating for the listeners, you know, the mental frame at which we, we're approaching this problem. You know, we're sitting here, two guys in Australia, educated, good jobs, have experience doing businesses before. And we are in sort of the, and probably the listeners are as well, in like that sliver of the, the 1%. And this question looks very, very different if you're in most of the rest of the world. You know, the, the should I start a business or get a great corporate job luxury question is very, it looks very different if you're sort of trying to figure out how to find your next meal in Sierra Leone, for example. And so just wanted to sort of make that really clear that, you know, we, we are taking the frame of somebody who has this big option set, who is probably financially well off enough 
to sort of get by and has many options at their disposal. And in that frame, yeah, I totally agree with with what you're saying. Several biases at play here. One of the ones that I always always think about is sort of really front of mind here is this time preference question. You know, there's a famous marshmallow experiment where you take children who are, I don't know, three, four, five years old, and you offer them either one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later or something like that. And people kind of bifurcate in how they make that decision. And, you know, many people choose two marshmallows now. And if you follow those people up later on in life, I think, you know, I think this is replicable. I haven't looked into it for a while, but if the study is robust, the outcome basically is people who choose the two marshmallows now and can't hold off for the next one a bit later tend to not do as well in life across several dimensions. And people who can kind of take the one marshmallow now or even no marshmallow and, you know, get one later tend to do a lot better. I think that is a common sort of misconception or sort of catch or watch out in starting your own business because it, it is indeed the case where you probably are not, unless you, you do the right business, you're not going to be making money in the very, very short term on, se- on several of these different types of businesses. And so it is a little bit of a sacrifice for potentially much bigger reward in the future, whereas a corporate job you know, pays you signing bonus and, and great salary upfront right now. It feels a bit sometimes like the, the marshmallow decision. So I reckon that's an important one to factor in when thinking through these options. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think beyond just the financial benefits it gives you immediately from, a, you know, you get a steady paycheck, you're secure, you can pay for everything you need. It's actually less stressful, I'd say 99% of the time, because you're ultimately not as accountable for the work which you're doing, right? People think that, and this is straying a little bit away from the money conversation, but People think that if you're, you know, I'll go start my own business and then I'll have freedom to do whatever I want. I won't work for anyone. But in actual fact, you're just working for your customers and you have far, far more accountability when you're working for your customers, because if you aren't there to service them, nobody else is. And if you don't service them, then your business is going to die. And I think when thinking about the trade-offs of if I'm going to go start a business for the purpose of, you know, making more money and that's better than my corporate job. There's a level of downside as far as, you know, mental stress and I guess being able to switch off goes that a lot of people also don't realize. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's a classic thing of, you know, knowing money is important and then using as a frame that, you know, becomes the only thing that matters and neglecting all those, those other things. And your, your example is actually great of, you know, you said you, you're chasing freedom and you potentially don't see clearly what, whether you're actually going to get freedom in the second path. I think in the financial aspect, that, that's really prevalent. One of, the, one of the, th- the things that's really difficult here is this survivor bias. When people look out into businesses that are successful in the world, or actually, you know, do, do a random sample of businesses out there. You want what you're seeing are the ones who have survived and who have you know been more successful, and you just don't see all the failures, and so it becomes really hard to calibrate risk and to assess risk here. And you know, there's a lot published on you know nine out of ten startups fail at various stages, uh, and how much does a startup founder actually make? How much does a business founder actually make? And honestly, these data are honestly often not very helpful because of where they come in in the funnel and how much of the sort of graveyard of failed companies they they miss out. And also they're very focused on startups that have gone down the the sort of VC funded, venture capital funded route. And they don't look at those businesses like old mate Val, who just did some Google ads and made 30 million bucks. 
And so it, it becomes very difficult to to make an accurate decision because the data is just unclear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's probably worth talking about what financial freedom even means, right? If you think concretely about the paths which get you to financial freedom, let's say you start a business. Maybe you're trying to make $10 million. You, you know, maybe you start a services business, you bootstrap it, you don't take any investment. Yeah, if you do really well, maybe you build it to 10 million in, in revenue over a few years, three to five years, you own 100% of it. That's going to be probably a very hard, difficult journey. You get to that point and you're still working in the business. At what point do you get the freedom part of financial freedom? Maybe you have to sell the business. If you sell the business, the acquirer is probably going to have an earn-out clause in there. You're going to have to stick around in the business for at least another, another two or three years. Watch you know, oftentimes a corporate beast destroy your baby that you built over several years in a, you know, soul crushing, you know, merging into their, into their corporate culture. Maybe you take it public, you IPO the business, and then you get to take a bit of money off the table by selling some of your shares, but then you're still running the business. And now you have public shareholders to answer to maybe, you know, private equity or some investors come in, they take up a stake in the business. You get to sell part of it, take the money off the table again cash out your 10 million. Again, you're still working in the business. And I think a lot of people don't realize this when they think of financial freedom. Probably the best way to do it is if you can find a way to hire your way out of the business. Can I find somebody better than myself to just run and operate this over time? But again, depending on what you're doing, that could be very, very difficult, especially if you're not planning for it from the beginning. And I think that's why it's so important to get very clear on what your goal is ahead of time because you're almost trying to plan out you know, a five to 10 year journey. And it's very, very easy to make some small missteps, which veer you very, very far off course by the time you get to that 10 year mark. Yeah. That, that story you, you were telling there about this apparently successful exited founder who in fact had to work for several years for a big corporate that was killing his baby or her baby. It, it, it reminded me of a coffee catch up we had with someone not too long ago who told a very similar story. I don't know if that's who you're referring to. And we won't name names, but what this person, what this person said, which was, I think was a really great image was, you know, after that experience, and by the way, this person is, is starting more businesses. So they, they haven't been burned too much and they have made a lot of money. But what this person said was the role of the entrepreneur is like a, a rat in a, in a maze. And your goal is just to get out. You set it up <laughs> and your goal is just to get out as fast as possible. And that's not such a nice image. I mean, this person made a bunch of money, but clearly if, if your takeaway message is get out, that's, it, it sort of proves that there is a lot, you know, a lot of misconception here and, and a lot that's not seen behind the veil. Nonetheless, I mean, there are several pros if you get this right. Obvious ones we've just mentioned are basically, you know, unlimited income potential, especially if you start a business that has a very, very big potential upside and you hit it right, you can ride the wave of that power law growth for a long time. And then, you know, that is that is the allure of venture capital funded businesses. But there are also other benefits if you do things right. I mean, with setting up your own business, you could make yourself very tax efficient. The, the consultants that I've worked with and, you know, the freelancers, they do this all the time. They set up things in a very clever way and it's super easy. It's fine. It's ethical. And there are great tax benefits that you can you can use. There is also just this idea of diversified income. You know, you spread your risk over different income streams. And so one of them fails, hey, you've got others to fall back on. You know, several really great pros if you if you kind of set up your your business ecosystem right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the 
the takeaway for most people here is probably that there's very, very low risk ways that you can add additional streams of income. Yes, you're going to have to work hard, but from a risk point of view, they're fairly low risk. They're almost guaranteed to work uh, in the sense that, you know, a business will typically have maybe two main types of risk. One product market risk. Do people even want this? And that's, you know, often the space of venture capital. People spend two, three years building things, iterating on them until they find something where they get the timing right that people want this. And then there's execution risk, which is, you know, can I actually just acquire you know, enough customers at a reasonable price point and deliver my service so that they pay me? And I think there's a very, very large number of buckets in that businesses in that bucket. And they're very accessible to people, even on the side, uh, alongside a corporate job. And you can go off and do them, diversify your income streams and get some of the upsides of having business without necessarily, you know, quitting your job, going all in, stressing yourself out, you know, long, painful, lonely journey. There's a spectrum here. And for most people, you know, you're probably further away from the difficult high-risk venture capital end than closer to it. Yeah, I, I, full, I fully agree with that. And that's definitely my preferred approach to to this thing as well. I think people have the misconception that you need to, you know, cut, quit your job, cut your, loss, cut your losses and just go all in upfront. And as you said, there are definitely ways to de-risk this by dipping your toes, starting with something small on the side, you know, iteratively de-risking and growing until you're more confident. And then either, you know, scaling it while still working a job or moving moving on to it full time or, you know, to a large extent of your time when you feel more comfortable. And it's, that's definitely a way to maintain some of that freedom as well. You've got more options, you've got more freedom, you've got more control because you're not fully committed into something that's, you know, burning cash, for example. And I think that that freedom point is is a great one. That's that's something that people care about a lot. You know, freedom and autonomy. I would say it's one of the probably the second thing that people mention when considering whether or not to start a business. And obviously, you know, if you get your business right, it can definitely be a, a great a great thing. But there are pitfalls as well here to be aware of lots of misconceptions about how much freedom and autonomy you get by starting your own business. I think you, you mentioned several of them already. I, th- I find the, the sort of the fire example fairly, fairly interesting here. What, what do you think the catch is that people assume that they're going to get a whole bunch of freedom here and then sort of misstepping? Where, where's that misstep coming from in your mind? I think people, maybe it's that when you're working in a company, you feel like somebody's telling you what to do, right? It might be your manager, it might be their manager, it might be the CEO. But ultimately, you show up to work every day and you're not in control. Somebody else is in a position of authority and they're dictating to different degrees what you have to do. And I also suspect people who work in corporate environments where they get a large degree of autonomy are probably going to feel less of a need to quit their jobs and never work for anyone ever again. They might you know, be allured by status or money or something else, but... I suspect the freedom motivator is going to be weak of them if they're already getting that at work. Now, for the people who do quit their jobs, I think what they're not realizing is when you go start your own business, you just work for somebody new, right? If you raise money, you're working for your investors. If you have customers, you're working for your customers and you're going to work a lot harder for them than you did for your boss. Because if you don't, your business dies. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, a Russell conjugation here, actually, in talking about this one. Are you familiar with the concept of Russell conjugation? No, no I haven't heard of it. It's a bit of a language trick when, when sort of talking through things. In this example, you know, you could say, what I want is autonomy, or this job gives me autonomy. 
and we naturally have very positive associations with autonomy. But that word is almost exactly dual to responsibility, right? Autonomy means you can do what you want. Responsibility means it's all up to you. But we have sort of a more negative view of, of that. And I, th I think I think that, that is at play here. So you could also say doing your own business comes with a lot of responsibility. It's, it's as old Spider-Man's uncle, Uncle Ben would say, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that's certainly the case with starting your own business. You're totally right. As a business owner, I mean, you, you are responsible. You're responsible for the success or failure uh, of the company. You're responsible for your own finances and you don't have a backing from someone else. If you've got employees, you become incredibly responsible of, of their future. And I think that can be extremely constraining. Nevertheless, there are people with the right mindsets, the right level of control capabilities who definitely thrive a lot more in this, in this environment. And that they, you know, they do feel like they have much more flexibility. And certainly if you choose the right type of business and you know, like consulting fr freelance as an example, something I've done, incredible amounts of autonomy. It feels great. And so th there is certainly something to be gained here as well on this dimension. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, a common one is in consulting is you'll find people who work six months of the year and they take the rest off because when they're working for themselves directly with a the company, there isn't a, you know, a company consultancy in between taking a large percentage of their pay. And instead of getting paid $600 a day in, in management consulting, you might be getting, you know, 1500 and that's enough to, you know, more than double your income and you can go off and live a very different kind of lifestyle. And there's plenty of people who do this their entire lives and have no you know desire to really go start any kind of bigger business or go back to to a corporate life where they have more stability and yeah that's that that's spot on yeah. i actually think it's worth like emphasizing here for this freelance type approach you know i, I i'm very fond of this approach i think it, it brings a lot of benefits and and it applies not obviously not just to consulting but any service industry where people come from an agency or sort of a professional services background, moving off to freelancing, there's actually a really first principles logic that makes it that makes a lot of sense here as to how, when and how this could work. If you think about a professional services firm, like let's say a design agency, you've kind of got someone who's responsible for doing the selling. Then there's people responsible for doing the work. Often the person, like in a consulting environment, the person doing the selling is a very senior partner getting paid a huge proportion of the total ticket size and the rest is spread across the people doing the work. And in the case where you've got someone highly capable doing the work who could quite easily sell by themselves, there are a bunch of benefits. The first one being uh, when work is scoped, it's scoped by the person doing the work. And so there is not this over-promising, under-delivering thing, which is one of the huge causes of lack of freedom and stress and burnout in professional services firms. The other obvious benefit, though, is that you don't have the highest paid person not doing the work and doing the selling. From a professional services perspective, if you think if, you, if you're buying the product, I'm, I'm paying the most as a customer to the salesperson. That's a very dangerous incentive. That's really, really dangerous. You want to be paying the most to the person doing the work, delivering the quality work, right? Yeah. And as a freelancer, you do that. And so I think for many people who are very good in professional services firms, freelancing for those people can be an absolutely fantastic option for elevating freedom. For sure. And I think you you touched on a really interesting point there, which is in starting any kind of business, distribution is king. And the reason a lot of people don't feel confident enough to go off and start their own business, let's say you work in you know, any kind of 
business on your own. You're doing some kind of work and somebody else is bringing you the customers for you to do that work. And probably the easiest type of business for you to go start is doing that same work directly for someone else, like the example we just said. And the main blocker for most people is they don't feel confident enough that they can go find and win those clients on their own. And at some point, if you go do that and you find, you know, base of clients and you hire somebody else and you start pumping out the work to them and you continue the circle of life, you're the only thing that changed was you developed the ability to sell, which is probably the key skill, whether and by selling, I mean, you know, learning SEO, learning marketing, selling directly, any of those things is probably the only thing that you need to figure out in order to be able to go start some kind of business to generate revenue on the side. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And and one of the one of the shortcuts to doing that, and you know, I don't want to go too much into solutioning mode now, but I think it's an interesting one is like the sort of halfway point between those two things, you know, being able to sell yourself and on the one hand and just being an executor on the other hand and someone else does the selling is sort of like this play that old mate Val again did, which is, you know, strong affiliate networks where if you find the right networks of people that, you know, they can refer into you, you can refer into them. It could be a bit of a wider network. That's sort of a nice, that nice transition point from not selling at all to sort of selling, but mostly executing and having a chance then to sort of build up relationships, build up client base and eventually selling yourself. So uh, that's, that's one I've seen work really well many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've we've talked quite a bit about, I guess, the low risk services option type of starting business. If we go all the way down the other end, you raise venture capital money, you start a business, maybe it's probably some kind of technology business, and you're trying to usually in the first you know, at least year find what they call product market fit. You know, maybe some people buy whatever you're selling, they kind of like it, but you haven't really found you know, that perfect market or the market's not big enough yet. And you're still trying to design this you know, product that's really on the, on the front lines of innovation in this, in this particular industry. You know, think Airbnb, for example, or Uber, both very, very new customer behaviors that took a long time to re-educate the market, take off, and then become commonplace. And those are very, very hard, right? From a freedom point of view, you wake up every day, your business is almost definitely losing money. You're just burning through the cash your investors gave you. Every second or every day that you lose, you're one step closer to death. And your goal is just to get to the point of profitability so you don't die. And even if you do get there, you might never find a product market fit. You might limp along for three years, four years, five years until eventually you make the decision to shut down the business. And from a freedom point of view, that's the opposite, right? You probably do have to quit your job and go all in on that kind of thing. One, because you're burning money every day. And so you need to be making as much progress as possible. But also two, your investors probably won't back you to build something on the side, especially if you're going to be paying yourself a salary. And there's a totally different dynamic down that end. Higher risk, way, way, way higher risk, both personal risk, financial risk, the opportunity cost the likelihood of success for the business, but also way higher reward. I think you're I think you're right. And actually it's, it's probably worth, I mean, in my mind, it's worth even distinguishing between the word business and the word startup. Because in my mind, they're almost not the same thing. They're often conflated, but they're almost completely different things. The definition I like for a startup is a startup is something that's venture capital backed, which means that you raise money from other people in order to grow faster than is natural. That's how it works. And the whole startup model is designed 
to push these businesses for growth much faster than they naturally could in order to return money to investors. And it's all based around this concept of the power law. The power law being that you know, almost all of the earnings that those investors would make are going to come from a very, very small number of companies that actually succeed. Maybe a sort of slightly smaller amount will, another amount will maybe sort of succeed or kind of get along, but not do very well. And the vast majority will fail completely. And I think the last stats I looked in this were like, you know, nine, nine out of 10 companies that raise early stage venture capital completely fail. And then I think it was nine out of 100 sort of kind of get along, but don't do very well. And then one out of 100 make all the money and guaranteed the journey is not free for any of those because you're not, you're not really free as a founder if your business is failing. It's a really stressful position. If you're sort of middling and kind of getting along and not retur- returning money to investors as you've promised because they expect this sort of explosion of, of growth, that's not a very free existence. And certainly that person who's you know, number one at the top, that one in 100 companies, hyperscaling you know, that, that's, that's someone who's managing a rocket ship and it could sound fun, it could sound great, but definitely that's the person who's burning the midnight oil, who's working all day, every day, who's in meetings from 6am until 10pm. It's a, it's a tough existence. And so, um, I think you're, 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 you're totally right. It's a different beast entirely from the services businesses that we were talking about. Yeah. And I think one thing you do when you do take investor money is you almost sell some of your ability to take freedom. So you could have a great business. Maybe you build a great product business or internet business and you have the freedom to run it however you want. And a venture capitalist will probably approach you at some point in time and say, hey, take my money. This could be so much bigger. You know, Instead of a $10 million business, you could have a billion dollar business. But the second you give them or you take their money, and give them some of your equity. You're also now bought into this particular path where you have to try and grow it to a billion dollars. You're, you know, you you might have to expand to different countries. You might have to make riskier decisions on the types of products you innovate on. You might have to go hire a lot more staff and take a lot of the profit you were making off the table. And you can't, you know, if, if somebody else came along and wanted to buy the business from you, maybe it'd be a lot harder to sell it or 10, 20, $30 million and walk away with a ton of cash and get the freedom that you originally wanted because now you're locked into this 10-year journey that's way, way higher risk. It might even kill the business and you've sold your freedom for whatever period of time that takes. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a bit of a risk to summarize this freedom, sort of like a value prop or goal across different business types. But I think there are sort of general things, general themes that emerge here. And that's basically, you know, typically the, the types of businesses that do allow for a lot of freedom, at least in the relatively near term, are definitely those ones that have low overhead costs. They don't require a lot of inventory, external investment, you know, examples like online businesses with maybe a little bit of investment from yourself, service businesses, freelancing, poaching, content creation. All those things, a lot of freedom in the, sh- in the short run, provided you can cover your, your financial basis. The startup approach, I think you, it's only in very particular cases where you do get freedom. I think for founders who are very differentiated, you know, they were doing something anyway, they're highly passionate about it. This is what they would be doing with their time, VC money or not. That's kind of okay. But for those people who go down the sort of venture capital backed or external investor route, on ideas that potentially they are not so bought into, that they're not personally differentiated on, that's a little bit more of a bet. And, you know, cases are individual, but for me, red flags go up. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. There's a story from the Airbnb founder, Brian Chesky, and he talks about at the very beginning, you know, they basically just wanted to start a startup and they had this idea that, you know, when people came into town for conferences, they noticed on Craigslist, you could, a lot of listings would go up and people would rent out part-time rooms. So they, they started building their business around this, but it took a long time for them to find that right product market fit for people to get comfortable renting out their homes, for people to get comfortable staying in other people's homes and they were in credit card debt they had they had a little binder full of credit cards they had 30 grand of credit card debt and he talked about how he would wake up every morning just having a panic attack right he would wake up his heart beating in his chest just sweating profusely and over the course of the day he would calm himself down you know get back into a state of control go to bed and then wake up the next morning and the same thing would happen again there's a funny story where they ended up selling you know, Obama-themed cereal at a convention center Obama in order Rose, to pay right. off. Yeah, and all yeah. that did was to cover their credit card debt. So they they didn't, you know, start getting chased by debt collectors. But it, it just gives you an example of what the level of stress and lack of freedom can be like in that, you know, really difficult venture-backed journey where you're trying to build, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. It's a perfect example. It's a perfect example. And I think it's it's actually a representative example. I think this points to the fact that a lot of people are actually chasing something other than freedom and and financial benefits and getting a bit confused or not being honest with themselves. And in the in the venture capital backed, you know, startup, take external money approach, I think it often is status. I think people often are chasing an image and, you know, not being truly honest with themselves about what that means. And so this this status one, this sort of like ego-driven one, maybe there are softer ways to say that, but I think it basically comes down to that. I think, I think that's an important motivation for many people. It's really common for people to feel motivated by ego or status when they consider themselves starting their own business. To be, to be perfectly transparent, I mean, even I have, have definitely fallen victim to this and thought about this a lot when making decisions about what I do. And I think while it can actually be a very powerful motivator, it can get you to do the work. It comes with its pros and cons. And it's it's something that I think is worthwhile being very, very honest with yourself about so that it doesn't be something that you sort of unknowingly optimize for at the expense of freedom, financial security, and all these other things that are really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the fear of failure is something that keeps a lot of people going in general and it's both a good and a bad thing it's good because it, it keeps your business alive and keeps you going and it's bad because you know it's not great for your mental health but i think for anyone who does end up going down one of those more difficult paths learning to balance that and understanding the trade-offs if that's something you even really want and if it's worth it for you is very very important early on yeah, I mean, fear of failure. You're right. It can be a good thing if you're if you're doing something that is aligned with your values and that you you want to achieve. Then, you know, you're right to to not want to fail. But when choosing a business for glamour or status and then having fear of failure, that becomes a bit of a, an insidious little thing where you kind of don't really care on a deep level whether or not this business succeeds. But at the same time, you're afraid of of being seen to be a failure in front of people. And I think that can be really hard. One of the one of the misconceptions that really, really drives this one, in my view, is just the fact that what we see on the outside, the outside end perspective, is very, very different from the inside out perspective for many business owners. You know, outside, depending on the type of business, it can often look really, really glamorous 
We're seeing things like posts on social media. We're reading articles in newspapers. We're seeing sort of marketing content, PR content. But we both know, I mean, we've been in startups of, of all shapes and sizes. On the inside, that's not what it looks like. It is really, really scrappy. Founders are running around. It's messy. And it's, it's anything but glamorous. And so even if you are chasing status, you know, you, you could be confused by this point that you're, you're seeing the outside and it's not going to be what you're consuming on the inside. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think with the, with the unfortunate kind of economy at the moment, we've seen a lot of businesses shut down too. And I think that makes it very obvious how many apparently successful businesses and founders are just kind of living on the edge, living on borrowed time, investor capital, and just really you know, a few months away from dying. Yeah. Even even businesses that are sort of known for being, well, I guess we're, we're speaking in Australia specifically at the moment, you know, Aussie Gems, uh, they've had pretty significant cuts. And, you know, we, we, we certainly know that things are not all, you know, roses and and chocolates and, you know, all those good things on the inside. And yeah, that's that's totally right. It can, it can certainly be a double-edged sword being perceived and talked about as a you know, as a rocket ship when at the same time, the economy is in a lot of strife. Yeah. Yeah. I think the availability bias here is a really, really big trap. And I think as far as motivators go, status is, look, there, there are some benefits to status. You know, if you're high status, you are more likely to, you know, win trust with people, attract deal flow. You know, it's going to be easier to open doors and unlock more in the way of opportunities. But if it's status for the, you know, almost kind of base primal biological reason, which most people chase after it, then it's probably the easiest one to deprioritize. And it can be one of the one of the motivators, which is the most distracting kind of at the top of the list for a lot of people subconsciously. And pushing it to the bottom can help you make way better decisions, you know, save you a ton of pain, keep you you know, more free, potentially even make you more money because you might find that, you know, you don't want to build just a $10 million business because some element of status is calling you to take the, you know, more painful, higher risk path of building a billion dollar business. For sure. It's, it's, this is one of those where it's really helpful to actually have a really good understanding of, you know, evolutionary psychology and the, the sort of typical failures of human cognition and how we think and how we make decisions. For several other decisions, it's a bit more clear. Like the the financial one, it's still difficult, but it's a bit clearer how you approach it. You can kind of define how much money you really need. You can do a bit of a risk-benefit calculation, and that should inform the decision relatively well. But we know when it comes to things like status, we're wired at a very, very deep level to, to seek this thing I mean, actually, one could argue the the sort of money question, the freedom question, a lot of that is in service of of status. And I think being really acutely aware of of just how deep this particular one runs is really helpful. And the things you can do to guard it to guard against it. For me, one of the things that really, really helps is just writing down your rationale and talking it through with someone and seeing if they buy it. People, other people are really, really good at spotting BS. And, you know, for me with my, with my partner, for example, if I sort of explain, articulate in a really clear way why I'm making a particular decision, she will spot instantly if this is an ego-driven thing versus this is actually logically sound. And so that's, that's potentially one bit of, a, bit of a tip here to catch you or to protect yourself from making purely status-driven decisions. Get, get other people to scrutinize your logic. Yeah, yeah. And I think 
the one which it's easiest to hide behind is impact because people will often frame a status-driven you know, approach to a business around you know the, the virtue signaling story of, you know, I'm doing this because it's mission-driven, impact-driven, and I, I really care about that. And there's you know, a lot of different ways to test that. Will, you know, the individual sell their business when it gets to a certain size? Are they, you know, really obsessed with maybe being, you know, a high status you know, individual in the company? A common thing you might see between co-founders is who is CEO? And in reality, that should be a really kind of functional decision. It's a role with responsibilities that somebody has to do. But oftentimes you can see, especially in, I guess, you know, fresher founding teams, it's a, you know, an authority status game between people. And it's a really good way to see, you know, are my motivations being driven genuinely by what's best for the business and maybe even the impact that I'm telling myself and other people I want to achieve? Or is it driven by, you know, some little ego internally? Yeah, this impact one is a big one. This is, this is really common. And it brings me back, it reminds me of the work by the the guys at 80,000 Hours and the Effective Altruists, who've written a lot on this and written a lot about making career decisions and what people should do with, with their time when it comes to making an impact. And without going into it, I mean, people should, people should look into 80,000 Hours, the website, but the, the general theme, something that emerges a lot, is people making decisions that are more sort of visible, you know, interpersonal from an impact perspective. Whereas that's very, very often, very commonly not the best way to make impact. It's almost always not. An example here could be choosing to volunteer as an individual in a soup kitchen. It's a great thing to do. You know, it's, it's, it's really good. But a high-powered executive choosing to do that versus donating the money from the equivalent amount of time, they, they, would, they would 50x their impact by donating that amount of food based on how much they could have earned. And yet you don't see as much of it. So it's just one example of how deeply this sort of like impact thing runs in our decision making. And it probably leads us, I mean, we've talked about, you know, making the decision based on financial benefits, on, you know, freedom or an autonomy or responsibility to Russell conjugate, on you know, status and, and the sort of external perception of impact. That impact one ties really well to the fourth thing that we mentioned was, you know, chasing a sense of like passion or fulfillment. People don't want to just make impact in abstract. It's it's in areas that are aligned with what they care about usually or what they say they care about. And I think this is a big one. I mean, starting starting a business based on a particular passion or topic or problem people want to solve, that can be a really strong motivator to invest the time, take the risk and so on to do those things. And people see it as an opportunity to like take personal interest and actually turn it into a viable career. But that's really, really important to balance with the practicalities of the matter. You know, financial viability, market demand, do people even want this thing, work-life balance and so on. And so I reckon it's, it's worth spending some time talking about this, this passion angle, which people sort of often, often think about when making these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You, you reminded me of, I think, one of the more famous examples, which perfectly ties all of these different motivators together. And that's the recent Sam Bankman-Fried and FTS. When you mentioned effective altruism, he, for, for listeners who don't know, who, who haven't heard of him, the youngest billionaire in the world, I believe, he started and ran a cryptocurrency exchange on the order of, I think, at the very least, tens of billions, if not hundreds. 
And, you know, he, he spun the story of, you know, he was a vegan, he was an effective altruist, very, very intelligent guy, you know, made his money initially through Bitcoin arbitrage, uh, took that capital, raised some money, started up FTX, which was his exchange, and for several years grew it really big and, you know, spun the narrative that he wanted to make as much money as possible so he could give it all away. Very, very impact driven. That's you know, essentially his mission, his purpose in life, he drove, or he told people he drove a Toyota Corolla, lived in a one bedroom apartment, that type of thing. And eventually it came out that he lived in a giant mansion in the Bahamas, you know, had taken tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, I think he gave his parents $25 million. You know, he was just kind of spending money left, right, and center and actually using deposited money not even revenue which FTX had generated, but money of depositors on the exchange. It's like if your bank manager just started going and spending your money. So extremely unethical, the complete opposite of the narrative which he was spinning. And I think it's super relevant to a lot of the things we just said, right? For one, you can't trust what you're seeing about founders and businesses in the media from the point of view of you know either how successful they are or even what they say their motivations are because it becomes a lot easier to lie to yourself and tell yourself one of those narratives if you believe other people's. I think it's potentially, I mean, I, I don't know his own psychology, but I think to some extent he was probably lying to himself very heavily. He was definitely, you know, a megalomaniac. He, he spent a lot of time making public appearances, you know, building his own personal brand, driving, I guess, status from that fame and status, obviously making himself a lot of money in the process, level of freedom, maybe maybe not so much, but it did seem like him and his, his small group were having a lot of fun doing what they were doing. And so when it comes to, you know, passion, challenge, ambition as motivators, I think, again, it, it's very, very important to ask the question of, am I lying to myself here? How how real is this? How valuable is this ranked against my other priorities? Yeah, for sure. Not to give... Sam Bankman free too much airtime here, but you mentioned that he enjoyed a bit of freedom while he was building his business. I think he's still enjoying a bit too much freedom based on what he did. I haven't followed the latest, but it was a little bit absurd how free he remained after all of this came out. So I don't know. Yeah, certainly there's certainly powers that be that that we don't know about. But you're totally right. It's it's a, it's a really great point you mentioned earlier. You know, we're making these decisions to take a step back and really scrutinize critically the information that's available to us to to inform those decisions. And across several of these we've seen already, there are certain things in place that should make us distrust and maybe have to recalibrate the information feeds we're getting in. And you're right, for the passion, you know, fulfillment angle here, that is a really big one. I think a lot of people read about what founders have said about their businesses and why they're doing them. Uh, They've read secondary sources like articles that people have written about what people have, why people have started businesses, interviews, and so on. But you have to really think about it from the perspective of all the incentives at play here. What are founders sort of incentivized to say? And of course, founders are incentivized to, to comment on the impact and the mission. And, you know, that's from a, like a, a PR perspective. They kind of have to do a little bit of that. And so already there, you should put a little bit of distrust or skepticism into those stories you read online about what founders have said and, and, and why businesses do what they do. They also want to attract people who are going to be really made of, motivated to work on a particular problem set, right? And so you, you come up with company values, the company mission statements, and people rally around these. And so employees 
sort of believe these things. They they work really hard because of them. And again, that just kind of self-fulfills a little bit this idea that the business is there for an impact or for a mission. And while it's somewhat true, uh, really at the end of the day, a lot of businesses are just there to kind of make money. They're sol- solving some market opportunity. And so I think this one in particular is is really important to kind of take a skeptical view, really think about it clearly, and then do, apply that same process to your your own values, your own motivations in deciding what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people, even just in the, you know, the stories you hear from founders or from businesses about their mission, they don't realize how many of those businesses started off in a totally different space. For example, do you know what YouTube started off as? I didn't think you were going to say YouTube. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I do. I don't think I do. So YouTube actually began as a dating website. The idea was you would go on, you would post a video of yourself, like a little, you know, individual profile. People would come along and, you know, maybe maybe engage with you. Over time, what they found was people were just uploading random videos and they pivoted into, you know, just video hosting and viewing for everyone, which is how you get YouTube today. But you know, I, haven't, I haven't checked what their mission or their tagline or their slogan is now, but I guarantee it's something around, you know, making videos accessible to the world or entertainment. And everyone just forgets the fact that, hey, weren't those guys super passionate about, you know, dating at the beginning? How did they end up here? Like, is this really a mission-driven thing or did they just want to build a business? Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure pretty much every single large company has a story like that. Everyone knows the Facebook story. I mean, no one thinks Mark Zuckerberg is particularly sort of passion-driven for his business, but everyone knows that it started with a bit of a rank your rank how attractive people are type thing. I think people know the Slack story, which started off as a video game company, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And then is now a communications or business communications company. Great company. Like a mission you could get behind, but that's not what the founders set out to do in any at all. Yeah. I think the actual messaging app was just a side project, which they had. And at some point the games were clicking out and they noticed people didn't like their other messaging apps. So they figured they'd double down on that. But yeah, I think it definitely highlights the fact that you can't, one, trust what you're hearing about mission driven as a broad narrative around why people are doing things. To a large extent, most businesses you see, I think, are very heavily driven by status and fame and a lot of the, you know, the motivators, which, you know, will probably not make you as happy. There is the occasional, you know, very mission-driven founder, but I, I suspect they're very few. Like if you're asking yourself the question, oh, am I one of those? You're probably not. Uh, it, it should be a very obvious answer to you that, you know, I, I will figure out a way to solve this problem no matter what. You might do a nonprofit. It might not make you a lot of money over your entire life, but it's just, you know, something that you have to go do and you'd be doing it for free anyway. I think so. I think so. On the other hand, this is a bit of a double-edged sword here because, you know, I've talked to a lot of investors and venture capital people who would say something like, oh, you think you want to sort of focus on your values and a mission, but really at the end of the day, what's going to be motivating you is to have a business that's successful. And someone who's really mission-driven, but having a you know failing business is going to feel very unmotivated. And one of the best things is, you know, is my business working? Is it serving customers? There is some truth in that for sure. But at the same time, I personally feel the the values aspect, the mission aspect is really, really important if you take this thing down to the long term. You know, my my belief is that what you decide to do with your time here is, you know, a very deeply philosophical question. It's you get one life, you have to make it, you have to make a good decision. And I think everyone should kind of be a philosopher of their own lives and career decisions are 
philosophical decisions in that respect. But for sure, there is a bit of a, a trade-off and a blend to play. Um, it's it's and it's a question of having sufficient alignment with things that you really care about that you could stay motivated if this thing was successful. In my view, yeah, I think the the point around I guess success itself being motivating is very true. It, it's like I don't know going to the gym. Right, people, and it could be if you look at it from the outside, standing in a room lifting heavy objects repetitively is incredibly boring. Yet some people get very, very addicted to doing this, and there's obviously a physical element to that, where you got to you do exercise, your body releases endorphins, and those make you feel good, and so you want to come back. But at least from what I've seen, what gets people hooked is progress. And in some sense, I think you know, for me, that's personally true with business. I. I kind of see business as a game and money as the score. It's just how you keep track. You know, is the business doing well? It's got revenue. Yes. And if I actually think about the feeling, it aligns very heavily with what I used to get when I played video games as a kid, where, again, open-ended environment, you know, different ways to solve different problems. And you had a very clear, usually numerical outcome, which you were trying to optimize for. I like that analogy. It's, it definitely takes the sting off of a, of a bad day if you think of it as just a, a more difficult level, more difficult boss to face in a, in a video game. So I think it makes sense. That's a, that, that's, a, that's a good analogy for this one. And I think it sums up nicely several of the things we, we have talked about. So, I mean, we, we've talked about the financial aspect. We've talked about this freedom aspect, the ego-driven status aspect, and now a more of a sense of fulfillment or fulfilling your your mission. I think there are several other things to to keep in mind that sometimes people don't really think about that are important. We maybe don't need to go into them in, in depth, but you know, some of the other ones, for example, are the the people aspect. There are benefits for for being in a big business. You know, if you join a big successful business, well-established brand, it can often be full of full of great people who you'll get to work with and you can grow your network very quickly. And you know, that's that's certainly a pro. On the other hand, Starting your own business, you know, it's often going to start off as a solo endeavor. And depending on your disposition and your constitution, that can be a bit difficult for, for people. So I think that's one that people sometimes don't think about enough. Um, certainly one of the additional smaller factors to consider. Yeah. I mean, even beyond that, if you are founding business on your own and you do hire people in, the nature of your day at work is going to be very, very different forever, right? You're not going to you know, be able to sit around at 3 p.m. on Friday, somewhat bludging and just chatting about the weekend with you know, people in the office. Maybe you can to some extent, but there will always be some level of barrier because you know, you've employed these people. And I think that's, that's maybe something people don't realize either. There's a lot of other benefits that come from you know, almost just being able to go to the equivalent of school every day, right? You show up, you get not necessarily get told what to do, but you know what to do. There's very little uncertainty. There's far less accountability. You get to hang out with people. New people rotate in and out. You can make friends with some of them and you get to go home at the end of the day. And, you know, depending on your job, there might be no homework. You know, you can leave work at work and come home and detach from it and keep your personal life totally separate, which is something that's a lot harder if you're fully accountable for the employees you have, the customers you have, the investors you have. For sure. And it goes back to the point you said earlier on about when considering this decision, it's important to really expand your option set and think really clearly about whether you're considering all the options at your disposal. I think a lot of people try to solve too much 
with just their careers or with just their business and don't realize that actually everything is in scope. It's what you do in your job. It's what you do with your personal time. All of these things are sort of inputs into fulfilling your, your criteria, your goals. And the people side, certainly one of them. I mean, a lot of people who feel like they, they need great friendships at work, maybe are not thinking about the fact that you could, if you set your life up correctly, can have really thriving social life and, and friendships elsewhere. And same for things like whether work is fun. You know, not every, not every job has to be the most fun thing that you can think of moment by moment, as long as, you know, on average or in aggregate, you're, you're getting the things that you need in your life. So I think that's an important one to think of when committing to a work decision or a business decision. It's an allocation of your time and resources. And the question is, like, if you're going all in, you will need it to cover sort of all of your values and everything that you need in your life. But if you're not, you have time, you have space to sort of fill in with hobbies, fill in with people to achieve some of those other things that potentially the business is not going to give you. Yeah. It sounds like there's maybe a few different archetypes, I guess, of things people are trying to solve for and the types of, you know, uh, solutions, I guess, the types of businesses that you could build to get there. So for example, you know, the first one we talked about financial freedom, you don't want to make it big. You just want to replace your income, maybe make a little bit more. And that could be, you know, the, the type of person you find on the FIRE subreddit. Financial independence, retire early. Maybe you're working three jobs and saving a bit and investing it. Maybe you're doing what Val did and finding an arbitrage somewhere, capitalizing on it for a period of time and you save up and up. Or maybe you're, you're starting a small contracting, consulting, freelance type business. You might, maybe you're even dog walking and you eventually get to the point where that's a sustainable enough income for you. Yeah, that's definitely an archetype. There are people who are just looking for the way to hit that financial freedom. They're very rational about it. And I think those options are great for those sorts of people. There are also those people who are, who are not that. They are much more looking for this, this ambition, this challenge. They just love sort of the, the challenge of, of whatever it may be, building wealth, building status, climbing a hierarchy. And I think for, for these people, you know, they really need to go big on, on whatever the thing that they're trying to solve for. And I think basically any of the options could fulfill this thing. Some people want to be climbing the corporate ladder and they thrive in that internally competitive environment, you know, on the trading floor, you know, in the boardroom. Others like the idea of sort of doing as much as possible and filling in their extra time outside of work with their side hustles. And so for, for, the, for these people, I think there are several interesting options. And there are also things that you could do to tick that box that are not work-related, of course. A lot of these people do triathlons and endurance sports and other competitive things. But, but for, for, the, for these people, I think, you know, several combinations of, of business options and lifestyle options could, could work really well. For, for the, those who don't know in the audience, Matt is a triathlon competitor. Is that the right word? I guess maybe, maybe there's a business on the cards for you soon. <laughs> yeah, maybe with my, with my old aging hips, I might have to convert to affiliate marketing for New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think the last one, which we just talked about, mission-driven. So, I mean, I, I genuinely know some people who are building their businesses, the pure purpose of solving a problem, and they think that is the best, maybe the most sustainable way they can have that kind of impact on the world. And I think it's a, it's a really, really strong motivator because, you know, inevitably there will be points in time where you wake up, you're like, everything's not working should I just quit? And different things are going to keep people going. 
For some people, it's the fear of failure. Some people are just going to give up. And I think if you're doing it for something bigger than yourself, then you're going to be far less phased by those bad days. And it's just going to be easier to go through it. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I mean, also, there are ways to, to fit that sort of sense of impact and achievement into other parts of your life. I think one of, one of the general themes coming out of this conversation is just the importance of taking a big picture view of that option set and thinking more broadly than maybe the narrow concepts we have in mind about what businesses are. And I think, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good one. The, the, the final like archetype that comes to mind for me that I hear a lot is this work-life balance one. It's the Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek type people. They're not super, super ambitious about making lots of money. They're not particularly chasing any type of specific impact. None of those things, but they just want to live a very balanced life. They know what type of life they want to live. They want the control and autonomy. They just want control over the schedule. And this could be the, you know, the type of person who does do a high paying freelance type job for six to nine months of the year and then take the rest of the time off or the type of person who just gets a comfortable corporate position doesn't necessarily start their own business, but is just comfortable where they are. So again, for this person, I think there's several different options. My preferred one certainly is taking something like a a, a freelancing uh, so service based option for the short term if if you can. It's a it's a pretty good option if it's available to you. Yeah, yeah. I think you know the the, the logic is very simple. You already get paid by somebody else to do this. If you can only just find other clients, you're already qualified, credible, can point to existing work, know how to do the job. It's the path of, you know, at least new learning, I guess. For sure, for sure. And I think it's easier for many people than they, than they realize. It's, it's, again, this thing about not fully understanding how big the option set actually is and kind of constraining artificially to, to a small set. I think part of it is driven actually by this, again, by this sort of like sampling bias and the availability bias. You're only, you're, people are only familiar with the, the businesses that you see out there, the sexy ones, the fun ones, things that are out there in the media. And I think this really limits the, the sort of world of possibilities that are actually available to people. And actually, there's a really interesting example that, that comes to mind just thinking about that. On the topic of, on the topic of making a lot of, a lot of money, similar actually to the, the Val example you gave where someone kind of did something kind of boring, kind of random but ended up making a phenomenal profit. Do you want to, do you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. This is actually, it's actually a personal one. I was, I was over the Christmas break. I was in South Africa in the Cape Town area and my old co-founder from my first business invited me over for this weekend away at their, at their place and ended up inviting me to this dinner with some neighbors of theirs on this estate, this, this German man. And he made, he made money in a very interesting way and he did very very well for himself and we go to the 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 super big details of it but i mean this guy was a very very smart guy i think he had a phd in engineering he had done several interesting things when he was young in his life like very ambitious very smart very interested in the world you would assume that this this person is doing something like rocket science or he's an engineer runs some very sort of interesting you know, type of type of business, and he's phenomenally wealthy. I mean, his his home that we were in, it is in a beautiful spot on, of South Africa on a wine estate on the water. I mean, the way I, the way I think about it, just to to illustrate how how amazing it was, is you could walk probably one hundred meters 
inside the home and be looking out a window the whole time at the wow. at the water. Just this one hundred meter long waterfront just one window. Window. Yeah, it was absolutely unreal. So this guy made a lot of money. Do you do you want to you want to take a stab at how he did it? Oh man, this is so hard. <laughs> Giving you nothing. Let's see, mechanical engineer, German, Cape Town, or oh, something boring. I might, I might guess some kind of agriculture, maybe farming. It's not, it's not agriculture. It's even more boring and less sexy than that. But it's, it's afforded him a sexy lifestyle. I don't know the full details, but basically, I mean, I don't even know what the product is. I've never even seen the product because it's so abstract. It's kind of like these little rubber rings that would go around pipes in plumbing. And so, no, like the little basically to, like, to seal the water in? To seal the water. Like that was the whole business. He, he identified. <laughs> That for some reason, nobody was chasing down this particular business. He had these rubber rings. He would put them around pipes and plumbing. And presto, he is a multi, multi-millionaire. So there is arbitrage. There is there is a wide option set for you right there. And that is a business that, that you should start. Ah, oh, man. I love it. I love pouring businesses like that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good story. Yeah. I think we've done I think we've done a good job. I feel like I feel like that's all I have to say on this topic, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that that was a long one. Um, came to hear the feedback.